well, over I think the, the liver from first of all, say, it is early nineties. People don't know where it is. I'm currently I'll be examining them and I'll and you know, pull their it's gown up a and I'll question. Um, and they're like, "What are you doing up there?" I'm like, "Well, that's where your liver is." Effort. Oh, I thought it was down here money somewhere into the and so that's the infrastructure a big point that people not don't even know where the nuts liver. and the bolts so have the pain on their instruments. Size, they don't know that it could be their liver, it could be their gallbladder. You know, the their research is not down their left the kneecap. Medical so side, the liver is the largest organ next to the skin. Surgeon, basically, if you look at the skin, it is an organ. Radiology. And the unique thing about that, first of all, it the is involved in over 200 different biochemical reaction it does a lot of stuff please join us every week for a new episode of understanding the human condition with dr james flowers dr flowers and his most admired mentors respected colleagues and vip guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes conditions and issues these in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Understanding the Human Condition. I'm your host, Dr. James Flowers, the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute. I'm joined today by our guest, Dr. Joseph Galati. Hey, Dr. Galati. I'm awesome and so happy to be here today. I am so happy and honored to have this world-renowned liver uh, specialist with us. So thank you so much for taking time. I know how busy you are. You know, yes, I'll say I am busy, but these kinds of activities really have to take a priority yeah, to communicate um, with the public, interested healthcare professionals. It's key. So I think it behooves us all to make time. Absolutely, it does. That's right. And you know, we're talking about a topic today, the liver, obviously, being a liver specialist. And we run into that at J. Flowers Health Institute and sure. in working with the patient population that we do. And it's such an important part of our human being, of ourselves, of our human condition. But first, I want to say that Dr. Galati's practice is liver specialist of Texas and the Metabolic Liver Center is devoted to the care of patients with all facets of liver diseases, obesity, fatty liver, and related disorders. Since 2003, Dr. Galati has been a familiar voice on Texas radio airwaves producing and hosting Your Health First every Sunday evening on the program's flagship station, 740 KTRH in Houston. Absolutely. it's. I tell people it's the best one hour of the week Absolutely. for me. It really is fun. That is so cool. And, you know, right before the show today, you and I, we talked a little bit about how you got into radio, and it was such a great story. I would love for you to share a 50,000-foot overview of that. You know, I love telling this because it brings back such great memories yeah. of childhood. In brief, growing up in New York on Long Island, my mother was a radio fanatic, yeah. and she had her transistor radio, battery-operated transistor radio, Every day we would come home from school, uh, and the radio was Bob Grant, a legendary yeah. host in the talk radio world, way, way before Rush Limbaugh in the 60s. And we had to be quiet. We had to listen to the radio. Sure. Not so much that mom was uh, having a running commentary. It was like, 
It was our quiet time. We were doing homework. We were having a snack. Mom was listening to the radio. And we just got into listening to the radio, hearing the commercials, the other shows that would come on. And it just really got into my blood, in a sense, this whole radio thing. And then also with my cousins and friends, we used to really, we were somewhat... We were good kids, but we were mischievous in a, in a sense. You know, good, clean, fun. Yeah. And the local WABC radio was a music station. We would, on Saturday night, we would listen to a call-in show, mm-hmm. a request show, and we would throw our voice. We would make up these outlandish names. We were 10, 11, 12 years old. We would get onto the radio, and that really empowered you to say, Hey, I was on the radio. Right. And it was just fun of being able to communicate. And it just sort of got into my DNA and allowed me to be a communicator in a sense, even at 10 years old. You bet. Absolutely. It, it was interesting. Yeah. And, you know, we could do, and I would love to do an entire, another show about the days gone by. We don't do that anymore. No. We don't sit around and watch, listen to our mothers, listen to the radio as children, and we don't go with our cousins and listen and call into radio stations anymore, really. You know, and I think we do miss a little something of that where, Mm -hmm. you know, and not to sound like your parents or your grandparents from the Depression, possibly, but there is something very valuable in reflecting backwards how things were Mm -hmm. things were good things were bad there were lessons learned and to learn from our elders in in a sense and as society fragments many people don't know their grandparents Mm -hmm. they don't know their aunts and uncles their cousins they don't know their family heritage in Mm -hmm. a sense and so you're almost growing up in a vacuum to say the way it is here is me this is it i have no contribution or you know it's like cooking, you know, you add spices and flavoring Absolutely. to the dish rather than, oh, this is, you know, a piece of meat with no flavor on exactly. it. You have to add from the past. I yeah, think. I agree. Absolutely. We do a lot of that here with our patients as well. Just looking back at childhood and the good parts of our lives and also the not so good parts of our right. lives, you know, and thank you for sharing that today. Let's talk about the liver. Oh yeah. And your passion other than radio. Yes. And tell our audience, let's start with the basics. Tell us about the liver. Well, I think the liver, first of all, it is a lot of people don't know where it is. I'll be examining them and I'll, you know, pull their gown up and I'll be palpating around. Mm -hmm. They're like, what are you doing up there? I'm like, well, that's where your liver is. Oh, I thought it was down here somewhere. And so that's a big point that people don't even know where their liver is. And so if they have a pain on their side, they don't know that it could be their liver. It could Mm -hmm. be their gallbladder. You know, their spleen is not down their left kneecap. That's right. (laughs) So the liver is the largest organ next to the skin, basically, Mm -hmm. if you look at the skin as an organ. Mm -hmm. And the unique thing about that, first of all, it is involved in over 200 different biochemical reactions. It does a lot of stuff. And it really, we like to describe it as the manufacturing plant for the body. It makes stuff. It makes hormones. It makes testosterone. It makes cholesterol. Mm -hmm. It detoxifies your blood. And it is absolutely vital. You cannot live without your liver. The other thing is the complexity of it. We have invented and created an artificial heart. We have invented an artificial kidney in Mm -hmm. the form of dialysis. 
we are yet to create an artificial liver. It is just too complicated and complex. Sure. We're getting there with a lot of gene therapy and things like that, 3D printing, but it is so complicated and so complex that we can't reproduce it. But the liver is involved in, in everything, mm-hmm. in a sense. The strength of our muscles related to mm-hmm. the liver, our cholesterol, our immune function, mm-hmm. detoxifying everything we put in, good or bad, mm-hmm. is related to the liver doing its thing. And so it is then everything. It's in the middle of all the activity. Some of the diseases that we deal with, and number one misunderstanding for everybody, we talk about there's two words that everybody gets freaked out about. All right. Number one is hepatitis. Right. So we'll be with a patient and we'll say, James, you've got hepatitis. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I'm not a drug addict. I never did this. I don't have tattoos. I never did anything bad. Didn't do drugs. Well, hepatitis is just inflammation of the liver. Got it. Now, there are viral causes of hepatitis, which are potentially Mm -hmm. contagious. But you could get hepatitis, inflammation of the liver, from medication, from alcohol, from other genetic things that you're born Mm -hmm. with. So before you have a meltdown, when your doctor says you have hepatitis, it is what type of hepatitis? Got it. Okay. The other word is cirrhosis. So many times we have to have a conversation. We do blood work, testing, biopsies, and the results come back and you have cirrhosis. Another meltdown situation. I never drank. How could, you're calling me an alcoholic. I'm like, no, I didn't say that. You're saying that. right? So cirrhosis is just scarring of the liver. Got it. That's it. Okay. Alcohol, since we're talking about mm-hmm. alcohol, accounts for only about 49% of all cirrhosis, which really? means 50% is due to obesity and a fatty liver, hepatitis B hepatitis C, autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. too much copper, too much iron in your blood. So if you understand that, those two words, hepatitis, inflammation mm-hmm. of the liver, cirrhosis, scarring of the liver, you're not automatically deemed an alcoholic, right. bad person, whatever. It comes down to the stigma, it which does. we have talked about ad nauseum. And so just as a side note, I had a really, really nice lady that had hepatitis C. She contracted her hepatitis C from a horrible traumatic injury. She lost half of her right arm when she was about 10 years old. Got it. Received 100 units of blood back in the 1970s. Right. She contracted hepatitis C. It was not diagnosed. She developed cirrhosis. Mm -hmm. And she's seeing me for the hep C Mm -hmm. and the cirrhosis. And we were talking about it, and I said, you know, you're going to, you know, where's your family? Where's mm-hmm. your husband? Where's your mom? Oh, I'm not telling them this. Mm-hmm. I said, well, why not? Well, they're going to think I'm a drug addict mm-hmm. and an alcoholic. And I said, well, you are neither, right? Right. You're not, never experimented with drugs. The hep C right. was from a dr- blood transfusion when you were at 10, when you were 10 years old at John Seeley Hospital in Galveston. Right. Right. You have no arm. (laughs) The cirrhosis is due to the hepatitis C. You don't drink alcohol. No, if I told my coworkers, my friends, my family, they would have a negative negative look at me. And so 
for months, I would, you know, we would be taking care of her and we would have this conversations. Have you told your mother? Mm-hmm. Have you told your coworkers? Right. You know, where do they think you are for all these clinic appointments? Right. And we never were able to break through to her. But again, in liver disease, this stigma actually prevents people from coming forward for the care they need. They'd Mm -hmm. rather sit home, concerned about what the neighbors are going to say, rather than come forward and say, okay, I have a problem. Let me get it addressed. There Mm -hmm. are therapies. There are people in centers around the country that could take care Mm -hmm. of it. So again, programs like this, to break down the stigma, this is really what really are all about. That's right. As well as all that you do. Sure. Absolutely. I want to ask you real quick, how did you decide, A, to be a physician, become a physician, and what made you develop this passion for the liver? Yeah. Believe it or not, I truly wanted to be a doctor by the time I was in second grade. That's great. And as a second grader, I had this sort of crazy reaction to penicillin. And I pretty much stayed home three quarters of second grade. I was homeschooled by my mother. I had to be on bed rest. From penicillin? From penicillin. I developed like this. It wasn't pee, but it was some sort of platelet clotting type thing. Now, my father, his whole career was in pharmaceutical sales. Got it. My mother actually was in the medical field as well as a administrative assistant, mm-hmm. secretary. She worked for the president of Pfizer International wow. when she was a young young girl in New York. So there was always this medical talk and magazines and medical mm-hmm. stuff. And the year that I was home, second grade, mm-hmm. my father had a very, very simple little basement office and all of his work-related stuff was sure. there. And the times that my mother would maybe leave me alone or mm-hmm. she'd run to the store, I would go down the basement and look through Journal of the American Medical Association oh, oh yeah. and all this stuff. And I just became completely enthralled with medical stuff. Just mm-hmm. I didn't understand it. I was just looking at the pictures. And it really stuck with me. And mm-hmm. all through grade school, high school, college, this was all I wanted to do. As far as deciding on liver disease, when I was... Right at the end of my internship, when Mm -hmm. I was in New York City, there was a young boy, probably about 16 years old. Mm -hmm. His mother was a Jamaican immigrant, and he had liver failure, some sort of autoimmune virus. He was in liver failure. He was in our ICU. I was taking care of him. Now, the funny thing was, I was in one of the largest hospitals in the country. Right. And there was no card-carrying liver expert. There were gastroenterologists. There were people that dabbled in liver Mm -hmm. disease. But there was nobody that really was an authority on how to manage this kid. Sure. And it was just at the point that liver transplant was starting Mm -hmm. to become more widespread around the country. Mm -hmm. This was 1988. And so this was my patient. He was getting more and more sick. And I, in discussions, I really felt that this kid, his only route to survival was to get a liver transplant. Well, they were uninsured. So the New York centers were not willing to take them. I called University of Pittsburgh, who at the time was one of the pioneers in liver transplant, Dr. Tom Starzl. And I called them up and I told them who I was. I was Mm -hmm. just a resident. It was July of 88. I was in the first weeks of my residency. 
And I told him, I have this young boy. He's in liver failure. These are all the complications. I think he needs a liver transplant. Uh-huh. I faxed the paperwork to them. They looked at it, and their simple words were, if you can get him here, we'll evaluate him for transplant. So the operative words were, get him here. Yeah. Yes. So New York City to Pittsburgh is not a car ride, right. a bus ride, a taxi ride. We would have to fly. Plus, this kid was in the ICU. Yep. And I don't know the details, and I do forget a little bit, but it took me about three days of going to the library, mm-hmm. looking at old newspaper articles on finding an angel pilot. Is that right? Somebody that would yeah. fly us from New York to Pittsburgh right. for free. Right. I found somebody. Amazing. I call him up Mm -hmm. and he said, yes, I have a uh, small Cessna and it's a four-seater and I fly out of Teterboro Airport in New Jersey. Wow. So I said, well, when could we do this? He says, well, my first opening would be, let's say, Thursday. I had about a three-day lead. Okay. So I talked to my attending and I said, look. I want to do this. I could (laughs) get this kid. And basically, it was like, okay, fine. Yeah. If Yeah, okay, that's a good idea. So I said, okay, talk to the mother. The mother's on board. I'm talking to the social worker at Pittsburgh, and right. everything is aligned. So now I have to figure, how do I get the kid from the hospital to Teterboro, right. which was about a 35-minute ride? Sure. So I take a collection from the nurses, the medical students, and my fellow residents, Mm -hmm. I think it was about $25. And I hailed a gypsy cab. So a gypsy cab in New York is not one of the yellow medallion. It's the equivalent of car service or Uber Uber. in a sense. It's just some dude with a Cadillac. Right. That's that old. Yeah. (laughs) And so I uh, go to the curb. I flag down a gypsy cab and say, look, we got to go to Teterboro. How much? I knew it was about $25, $30, whatever. Sure. I said, I got the cash, and this guy will said, yeah, I'll do it. I go back to the ICU. We have to disconnect this kid from intensive care leads. He had a nasogastric tube in his nose. He had a central line. Wow. This would never, ever, ever even be considered today. No, It'd be malpractice. Sure, yeah. And we disconnect the kid, put him in a wheelchair. Everybody wheels this kid to the curb. The gypsy cab is there. We're off to Teterboro. <laughs> I don't know what the pilot looks like. Right. So it's me, the kid, and the mother show up, Teterboro, and like the pilot's name is Bob. I'm like, is Bob right. here? Hey, uh, are you Joe? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. okay. All right, you're, uh, 10 minutes. Yeah. And I'm looking at this kid he's saying- He's got a Cessna. <laughs> he's got a Cessna, you know, four-seater. And I'm saying at any moment, this kid could bleed, hemorrhage, mm-hmm. go into shock, and this is like a two-and-a-half-hour flight, yeah. you know, puttering over That's to right. Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And so we stick this kid in the back with his mother. I'm up front with the pilot. We take off, and I am saying a Hail Mary to say, Jesus, just get me to the airport. Absolutely. I arrange for an ambulance. An ambulance is waiting for us at the airport. We all huddle in the ambulance. Right. Even the pilot. Sure. The pilot parks the plane, and he's like, come on, we'll have lunch. Yeah. They admit the kid. He goes off, and me and the pilot 
to get to the story here. Me and the pilot sit in the gift shop mm-hmm. of the hospital. I am eating a tuna melt. And you bought out I'm of it. literally, this is the closest thing to, and I'm using this quite loosely, sure. PTSD. Right. I am in shell shock that it is 12 o'clock. I am sitting in Pittsburgh. This kid is going to the ICU. He's probably going to get transplanted within 36 hours. I'm sitting here with this guy that I don't know. Right. And we just pulled off the impossible. Eat your sandwich, have a Coke and a smile, right. and we're going back to Brooklyn. Wow. And at that point, I truly said I was going to commit myself to liver disease. And that was That's it. It was amazing. July of 1988. Wow. What was the outcome? The kid got transplanted within two days. And unfortunately, back in 1988, we did not have good antiviral therapy for something called CMV, cytomegalovirus. Sure. And CMV is typically either the person has it Mm -hmm. and it's under control because their immune system is okay, or the donor liver transmits it and the uh, he died within about a month of cytomegalovirus. Wow. Gosh, that's too bad. Yeah, but what a life changing experience yeah. for you, right? Yeah. I said, the rest I'm of your life, yeah. all in, and yeah. that was it. That's amazing. That's how did you end up in Houston? Well, from Brooklyn at Kings County State University of New York, where I did my medicine training, I went to University of Nebraska, which next to Pittsburgh was probably the premier liver program. And a number of the people I was training with were recruited a few years before me to head up the first liver program in Houston, the Texas wow. Medical Center. Sure. And this was 90, 91 through 93. They started recruiting. One person left. Mm-hmm. He recruited one of his yeah. buddies and sure. her buddies. And within a period of about three years, there were several people that I was training with mm-hmm. from the University of Nebraska at UT Houston, here Amazing. in the Texas Medical Center. Sure. My wife and I had plans of going back to the metro New York area. Sure. Please our parents, <laughs> our brothers and sisters, we're coming back. We're coming home. home. We're going to Omaha for a few years, but we'll be back. Yep. And it was so attractive to come to Houston, yep. to be with friends and colleagues on a journey of something totally new. Sure. And... We decided to come here in 1994. That's amazing. And what your practice has become, I believe, if not the top number of liver transplants in the United States, yeah. one of the top. Tell us about how many transplants, and because you guys are, yeah. are doing leading-edge transplant yes. medicine. Yeah, and so over the, from, say, the early 90s mm-hmm. to current day, I'm currently at Houston Methodist Hospital. Yeah. And... It's a question of talent and investment of effort, materials, Uh and money Sure, into the infrastructure. The infrastructure includes not only the nuts and the bolts and the surgical instruments, it is the human power that you need, the know-how. On the research side, on the medical side, medical liver disease, hepatology as we call it, the surgeons, it is radiology, it is pathology, it is immunology, the basic science researchers. I feel certainly Methodist has yeah. out, I don't want to say outspent, because mm-hmm. that it's not just the dollars and cents, the recruitment of the right players. That's right. Okay. Sure. The New York Yankees, I think, have the highest payroll, and they look do. what happened to look them. Look what happened. Okay. Yep. So it's not just, hey, we're going to throw more money at an idea. Right. 
But we have, over the last 10 years, Houston Methodist Hospital to essentially the number one liver transplant program mm-hmm. or number two, depending on the month and mm-hmm. different volumes, which is a, a Herculean effort to right. go from the lower third to the top, beating out wow. you know household names of Cornell, Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. UCLA, sure. Chicago, Miami, to say, here we are. We've done it. And it's been hard work. It's been a joy. We've mm-hmm. saved a lot of lives. And it's something all of us could look back on to say, I was part of that. That Absolutely. was pretty cool. Yeah. And not only are you one of the world's leading liver transplant specialists, not only are you, are you an amazing talk show host, but you're also an author. Yes. And this book, Eating Yourself Sick. Right. Let's talk about eating yourself sick because obviously nutrition and food play a large part of liver health. Right. So that book came out of, we had cured hepatitis C. Wow. Hepatitis C at, from the day I started, mm-hmm. let's say in, say residency in the you know 1980s mm-hmm. through the mid 2010 or so. So that's a fair amount of time. It was all about hepatitis C. Right. It was everywhere. And we were going through various drug regimens and mm-hmm. research. Some worked, some didn't work. And then we, you know, hit the home run with a, a medicine called Harvoni. Okay. Where we went from a very dismal 40 to 50% cure rate over a year, putting people through hell with these interferon oh, shots. Yeah. And it, was, it was a disaster to, here, take this pill. And you have better than 90% treatment in just several weeks of treatment. No side effects. Yeah. So everybody was treated Mm -hmm. and those patients were sort of gone. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's still with the opioid epidemic and prescription drug abuse and crack and whatever. It's making a bit of a resurgence in the younger Mm -hmm. generation. But we have a good answer for that. But in that space... Fatty liver filled the void in yeah. a sense. And so I look back at patients I knew 30 years ago, old dictations of letters from, yeah. uh, you know, 1995 talking about fatty liver. We really didn't quite understand what it was all mm-hmm. about, but it was there. But now we focused our attention mm-hmm. on fatty liver. And there's about 80 to 100 million people in the United States with fatty liver. So a third of the population, right. up to a yeah. third. Yeah. yeah. Fatty liver, leading cause of cirrhosis, leading cause of chronic hepatitis, yeah, right? leading disease for liver transplant. Right. So you've got a lifestyle problem that's being treated with a liver transplant that is expensive, sure, not available, high risk. Just eat better. Yeah. Just right. learn what the hell you're eating. Absolutely. And, and so I, this was my reflection on... As a society, we're Mm -hmm. eating ourselves sick. Yes. Obesity, when people say, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm big boned. Right. No, you're not big boned. You're just making bad choices. Are there people that have genetic and hormonal issues? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's probably a very small minority. Mm -hmm. But most of the obesity we're seeing is bad choices, not really understanding foods they're Mm -hmm. eating, fast food. You know, I'm sure when you were growing up, Going oh. to a fast food, you had to get in a car and drive for miles. Right. That it was a rarity. Now, I could walk out of here and see 20 places Absolutely. for fast food. 
People aren't learning how to cook and eat. We're not eating as a family. Mm -hmm. The disintegration of the nuclear family, how old-fashioned is that? Yeah, right. We don't sit sit around and eat. Sit at home with your family and your friends and eat, break bread. No. You know? No, we're too busy. You're going out or, oh, the hell with it. I'll just pick something up myself. Yeah. And that's all contributing to this, and we're eating ourselves sick. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, this is an amazing book. I can't wait to read it. Thank you for bringing it today, and thank you for being here today. Anything you want to finish with? Anything that you want to tell our audience about liver disease? Well, you know, I think so much of what we do together Mm -hmm. with our patients and clients is in the alcohol realm. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, the stigma of alcohol. And that stigma carries through every you know, facet of their life. And especially when it comes time for transplant. That's right. Okay, for liver transplant. Yeah. And unfortunately, a percent of individuals that have alcohol use disorder, alcoholism, mm-hmm. will get to the point that they're either late for intervention, it wasn't right. identified, they were hiding in the shadows, in mm-hmm. a sense, embarrassed. They don't want to say, hey, I have a problem. And they get to the point where they are dying of liver failure. Mm -hmm. And of course, liver transplant is an option. There is something that's been around since the earliest days of transplant called the six-month rule, which basically says, if you have alcohol use disorder, Mm -hmm. you are an alcoholic, you have cirrhosis, bad boy, you have to sit in timeout for six months until you go to recovery, abstinence, you get a sponsor, you work your way through a 12-step program, you have proof mm-hmm. of abstinence, then come back and talk to us and we'll talk about transplant. Well, I've even heard up to two years. Yes. Some people Yeah, and think, I mean, yeah. it started off as a six-month rule. People say, oh, Dr. So-and-so at this center said 12 months. I'm like, well, where did 12 months come from? Right. Six months isn't bad enough. He or she is just making this up. Right. Two years made up. Right. And there's very little scientific data that will mm-hmm. say, if you're absent for six months, that will predict what the next six months or the next year, because That's we're right. afraid that if we do a transplant on you today, you will go back to right. relapse and that could be bad. Yeah. And so what we have evolved over the years is because there are a number of patients that we saw that really did very well mm-hmm. with short term sobriety. Right. They were sober for 30 days and they never drank again. So how do you pick these people out? That's right. So we have taken the approach here in Houston of let us evaluate. I'll say everyone, mm-hmm. but we have, we have to look at everybody. It That's takes right. work. Sure. It takes time, blood, sweat, and tears. We have to evaluate patients and to try to determine the risk of relapse. That's right. We have taken a policy where for the most part, now there are exceptions, Mm -hmm. that we completely eliminate the six-month rule. There are patients that may recently Mm -hmm. have been consuming alcohol. We evaluate them for transplant. They get on the list and they're too sick to go to to therapy. You know, the rigors that you put your clients through. Eight hours a day. Eight hours a day. And you know, they're sick, they're confused, Mm -hmm. they're malnourished. You can't expect them to do this. Yeah. But there are others that would say, hey, not my problem. You did this yourself. Absolutely. So suck it up. Heard it 100,000 times. And and go from there. Yeah. So we have taken the attitude of evaluating these patients, the high risk, and there Mm -hmm. are always going to be high risk. We have to 
in a sense, put to the side and get them into treatment and sort out any sure. psychological, emotional mm-hmm. issues. But the hope is that after a successful transplant, they're getting healthy, then they get into an aggressive program. Right. Many cases, it is an inpatient mm-hmm. type scenario, intensive outpatient. Mm-hmm. That's and right. we have very good success. That's amazing. And so yep. the word is... If you are dealing with alcohol use disorder, Mm -hmm. alcoholism, liver disease, and you're muddling around being told you have to wait, you did this to yourself, which again, last thing I'll say, heart disease. Right. You're obese, you smoke, you've got diabetes out of control, you didn't do this to yourself, but yet nobody complains when you go for triple bypass. Exactly. Oh, Uncle Bill needed triple bypass. Mm-hmm. Somebody's like, well, he what, did are we that do- to what are we doing this for? Yeah. Well, the people with lung disease. Sure. smoked. Right. Okay. We're still going to give you chemotherapy mm-hmm. for your lung cancer. That's right. Yeah. So I think for those that get this message today, reach out and there's centers, certainly here in Houston. Sure. And with your cooperation that we could partner. You have to partner the medical and surgical with the recovery. Part. That's right. And that's yeah. very, very optimistic for our ongoing yeah. collaboration. It is. You know, and I'll say that the Texas Medical Center was founded back in 1962 on the concept of cross-institutional collaboration. Right. And that's why we've really become the largest medical center in the world and one of the most, if not the most successful leading hospital systems and medical centers in the world is because this is what we do, right. is collaborate with Very each other. So. And without that medical collaboration, we don't see the successes no. that you see or that we see. So I appreciate that so much that we're able to share patient information, of course, with permission with a patient, but be able to share information and work together on these cases instead of working in silos like we see across and, the world. You know, you look at other medical centers and, and everybody's proud of their medical sure. center, their yeah. medical school, their hospital. Right. And here in the United States, we're very blessed that we have such great technology. Yeah. But when you think that if you're out, pick a city, whatever it is, sure. their hospital, multiply that by 10. Yeah. Within a two mile radius or three mile radius, yeah. you've got all these people concentrated here. There's no place in the world like this. No, there's not. I to always tell point. people yes, when you fly into Houston, you look over and you see these skyscrapers and you think it's downtown Houston. It's really the Texas Medical it is. Center. It is. Yeah. I would encourage everyone go look at tmc.edu to just look at the statistics of what the Texas Medical Center does. And Dr. Galati, how do people reach out to you and your practice? Well, the easiest way, liver specialists of Texas, I would say texasliver.com. Texasliver.com. And how about your radio show? Well, gosh, you could go to iHeart. Again, texasliver.com has all the links to the radio show, the podcast, all of course, all the social media that we live and die by. Absolutely. You're a big social media star as well. I can't thank you enough for being here today. So thanks so much. And well, let's do this again. Absolutely. And you, you do a tremendous service to the clients you. that you service as well. Thank you so much. And everybody out there, thank you for listening today and watching our show today. And you can also go to iHeartRadio and look at, gosh, Spotify and Apple and everywhere else. We're all out there understanding the human condition. Thank you for being here today and have a great afternoon. 
And I'd like to remind everyone watching or listening to us that there are numerous platforms to find our podcast, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Please share this episode on social media or with someone that you think could help. Absolutely. And we remind you also that a clear diagnosis is key to the most effective treatment possible. Yes, it is. See you next Thanks week. Thanks again, Robin. Thank yeah. you.